This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Ambrose Doolan. Ambrose and his wife, Lisa, run a commercial Angus cattle enterprise, as well as a small stud bull operation, along with some fodder cropping on their property, Turawandi, near Coonabarabran. In this episode, Ambrose talks to us about the opportunities and challenges of family farming in the Central West, and shares with us how the failure of conventional farming in his environment 20 years ago led him to adopt minimum tillage and then to become the first Australian importer of seed hawk air drills. You'll also hear how he lives by the philosophy of don't see a need without doing something about it, which has led him to being very involved with community and local council, where he now proudly acts as the mayor of the Warrumbungle Shire. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor, Rowan Leach, sat down with Ambrose over a cuppa for this chat at Turawandi. G'day listeners, today I'm with one of Coonabarabran's most well-known characters, Ambrose Doolan. Ambrose, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Good afternoon, Rowan. Thanks for coming. Ambrose, I'd like to start off by getting you to tell the listeners a little bit about your operation here at Turawandi. Yeah, certainly. So together with my wife, Lisa, we run mainly cattle operation, Angus cattle. So commercial cattle is the main game, but we do have a, an Angus stud called Isla and we take a great deal of delight in breeding some nice bulls and some nice cows. We do a bit of farming, mainly for oats for the winter to fatten our cattle and the odd bit of grain, a bit of canola, just depending on how the season's going. And how many bulls do you put up? Uh, it'll be just over 30 this year. We kicked off breeding them many years ago and just a few for our own use and then, you know, the neighbours used to buy a couple and then we had enough to hold a small sale with about the 30. I think we got 70 coming along for next year. So the numbers, stud numbers have built up a little bit. So um, that's where Lisa, she's just off to give those a bit of a mix there now. The uh, oats is a little bit behind where we should be this year. So week or two's time they'll be able to go onto the oats, but we're just giving them a bit of a hand in the meantime to keep them going. Driving in this morning, it's Coonabarabran's looking pretty dry, isn't it? We'd like it to be a bit better than it is. It's uh, <laughs> We're a bit less than we... We normally would be, and then a bit of a blue on my part. We did, we weren't ready to go, and when it was time to sow the oats back in February, we had a couple of jobs to do on the cedar. And great friend of the farmer in our part of the world is Bob Freeburn, who all, everyone listeners would all know and love. And he's always been very strong on that. Some years you just get one chance to put the oats in, and if you miss it, you're in for a tough winter. And we did, and we are. So we'll promise not to make that mistake again. That's it. Oh, your timeliness of operation is so important. Like it's important with livestock and sheep particularly, but in cropping, I just can't seem to stress enough to some growers how important it is to get your sprays on time, get your seeding on time. That's right. And then, you know, that old fall of rain makes us look like good operators too, which we just haven't, we just haven't been able to jag this year. That's it. An inch of rain at the right time makes a difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer. So what are your soil types here and at your Turawandi? Well, we've got a bit of everything. Closer to the river, we've got some sort of sandier loams. A bit further away, you'd either sort of a red soils, probably the predominantly red soil we have here, and 50%, 25% sandy loams and sort of 
the other 25% of sort of chocolatey brown stuff. Fair bit of stone. So that's what Turawani means, rows of standing stone. So we've got a bit of rock in our country. And you can just see this year that lighter country with the lighter falls of rain that we've been having, it's, it's kicking a bit of a goal where the heavier country's not. You did point out that to me and the difference is chalk and cheese this year. It is, yeah. And so the pastures on your place, is it majority improved country or is it you've got a fair bit of native pasture? All top dressed. So we've just been a bit behind where we should be with our fertiliser the last couple of years. But that's, again, a legacy of our mate, Mr. Freeburn. He really pushed that onto our district, how you can turn light soils into really productive country by uh, the use of fertiliser. And in conjunction with that, we were consul lovegrass on our lighter country and we sort of, later years, we moved on to more digit, which we think is a, a better grass. And we've, Lucent's been a big part of our job here over the years and that's got a bit behind in those dry years. We lost a few paddocks of Lucent, so it's up to us now to get on and plant a bit more pasture than we have done. And to that end, we're just doing a bit of a, quite a big program, subdividing a few of our paddocks that are a bit too big. And that'll allow us to uh, get on and pasture improve those paddocks and then graze them a bit more efficiently rather than sort of setting them on there and setting the cattle on there and leaving them for too long. How big's too big? How big are you cutting them down to? Well, the paddock that the fellows are in there at the minute, there's 128 hectares of cultivation and then some big rocky knobs. So there's probably, might be 160 hectares in the paddock. And we're cutting that into four. And then the next job, there's another paddock there. It's 170 hectares that we've got into oats. And there's probably another 40 hectares of rocky knobs and railway line and bits and pieces there. So that one, we'll cut that into five or six. Then you don't have to put on five or 600 head of cattle in one mob. And then, you know, if you want the big ones out, you've got to go through all of them. Where if, if we can draft them, put them on and have big, little and small heifers and steers, and run the joint a bit more efficiently than we have been. Is the terrain here pretty mountainous or is it more gentle slopes? It's slopey. Anything along the river's flat. And then as you get up a bit, we have some gentle slopes. Yeah. And does that make any headaches for fencing? No, not too bad. I did ask the people giving us a hand with that and they said, oh, no, this is good here compared to other places like Cooler. So they're, they're happy enough. So it's all good. It sounds like you've got a pretty summer rainfall dominant system with Premier Digit and Consul and, and Loose. And have you got any winter growing varieties or species that you go for? Oh, just the subclovers and, you know, arrowleaf and things like that that we put into the mix. So um, that's been our mainstay. And in a normal year, looks after us pretty well. Just a bit tougher this year. So lagging behind where they would normally be. So it sounds like you're a bit more focused on your livestock than your cropping enterprises. Why is that? Well, I think that's where the money is for us here. We used to do quite a bit of farming, but I think it's probably better to leave it to... Um, Folks like out at our son Mix out there where it's flatter and you can get a bit of a go on with, you know, here if you're not going up a hill, you're going down a hill. And it's just a you know, matter of there's just only so many hours in the day. So we're quite busy with the number of cattle that we run. So we've got a full dance card most days. So it's just a more of a, a soil type and climate selection. Oh, and a bit of lifestyle choice too, Rowan. We're busy enough with the cattle. It's sort of the farming can take all of December up, you know, if you've got wet harvest and things like that, you know, things you need to be doing. And so we've just made a conscious choice to be more livestock and less farming. Now you've touched on it there uh, briefly. Your son Mick has also been on the Seeds for Success podcast. What does he think about his father following in his footsteps coming on today? Well, I, we, we can probably blame him, but um, oh, Lisa and I, we're very lucky. We've got two children. There's Mick and their daughter Emily, and they've both followed us into the farming caper. So Mick and Pip, they're out at Canaveral and Em and Joe are at a lovely block next door to our other place. And they're all involved in what we do here and it's very special and we're very lucky that they're a part of what we do and 
that was one thing during the dry weather in 2018 and 19. It was pretty solid here. You know, that's all we did for two years was feed things. And it'd be easy to get down in the dumps and think, you know, this is all always us. But one thing I really was conscious of how lucky a fellow is to have his family interested in doing the same thing and we're all doing it together. So that's how we were able to get through a pretty tough time as a unit and hopefully we're not launching into another one now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fingers crossed for that. It's a pretty privileged position that a lot of farming families are, are in to be able to work and sort of see their family every day and be in the business. How have you found working with your son and daughter? How's the dynamic been there? Oh, it's been good. You know, I wouldn't have had crosswords with Emily when she was here full time, you know, more than a couple of times, really. Only a couple of arguments, lost them all because she's, uh, <laughs> she knows what she's talking about. And similarly with Mick, he's a good man. And um, so no, it was, it's been good. And I think if everyone gets a chance to have a say and their views are listened to and taken board of, I think that it seems to work. I don't know. We seem to muddle through. We, we get by. You know, my dad didn't want me to be a farmer and I can see why at times because it is, it can be tough. And he said, oh, I guess go and do something else. But then when I said to him, what do you think if I come back and work with you when we finish up at school? And we both went to the same school down there in Bathurst. When I, I said to him, can I come back and work with you when I finish school? And he just said, well, that'd be good. And that's as in-depth as it got. <laughs> Here we are 40 years later. And I think it'll continue on. But all the, all the grandkids are pretty uh, interested in what we do too what their parents do, what their grandparents do. So that's something that will continue on. Going into your Isla stud operation, what are the genetics based off? Initially, we bought a couple of cows from Millamurra in 20 years ago now. Mick was still at school. So we went down and bought a few cows there and we sort of bred up a little bit from there. And then a couple of other studs as they were having, um, they were selling out. They sold all their stock. We went and bought a a few cows here and a few cows there. Usually if we're getting some extra genetics in these days, we buy some embryos. But we've, we've bought a couple of nice heifers and a couple of nice cows off, again, Millamurra and some their progeny from other places, Brooklana. And it gives us a lot of pleasure to be able to look at a cow and then be able to purchase her and then join her to something and then see those calves come in the future. It really gives us a lot of joy. And we'll sit here of an evening when the new sires come out in the springtime and Different semen companies will have a video presentation that they'll put on about all the new sires that are coming up for this year. And Lisa and I'll sit in the kitchen with a, a nice glass of red and just watch those and take notes. And it's we're people of simple pleasures, and that's as good as a, a good night out. <laughs> it's almost impossible to explain to people not from agricultural backgrounds the the sense of enjoyment or satisfaction in breeding animals or or that farming other enterprises bring to agricultural people, isn't it? No, it is. It really is wonderful. You know. Uh, there's a horse over there that's in foal to a pretty handy stallion that is the great granddaughter of one that I broke in when I first left school. So we've kept that and, you know, Mick and Em rode the progeny of that at pony camp when they were kids and in the future their kids will be able to ride the progeny of that when they go to pony camp or they're going to pony camp now. So that's special and there's something in that, you know. That's what we do, what we do. It's not often about the money, which is just as well sometimes, but it's there's more to it than just the financial rewards. It's all of that connection to what's gone before and what's coming after. And we're very lucky to be in the middle of it. We've gotten very philosophical <laughs> very early in this, Ambrose. I, I like it. With your stud, what's your breeding objective? What we're looking to do, as well as we were just breeding bulls for our own use to start with, and now obviously want to sell them to some other folks, but just functional cattle that uh, easy birthing you know so our philosophy is there's no good fixating on how big a 600 day weight is if they don't get through day one so that's you've got to be able to um, 
good carving ability. And then the other things we look for are high growth after that. A little bit of marbling, not too much. We want some fats on their rib and rump because we think that sort of aids with fertility. And then it's they're the figures we look at and then it's just the animal itself that, you know, just that shape that appeals and not too big a mature weight so that they're not eating you out of house and home. And yeah, they've got to be able to perform here. And the market we have been using for our commercial cattle for a long time is the feedlot job. So we're just the characteristics that we want to sell our cattle to the feedlot and they thereafter that growth and bit of marble and, and some yield in the cattle. And just talking to the feedlot, JBS is the main buyer of our cattle. They're happy enough with what we do. And they've got re- feedback that they give to us and share with us that tells us we're on the right track. So we'll just keep muddling along, poking <laughs> along the way we're going. Sounds good. I mentioned before that you're pretty well known in the Kuna district. Why would that be? Lived here all my life, I suppose. Just a couple of years away at school and then back here to work on the farm and been here ever since. I think what you're dabbling at is I've got the... <laughs> you have picked up that I'm angling, yeah. Yeah, so the, uh, currently the mayor of the Warrenbungle Shire, which is a great honour and a great privilege. That's a job with a big responsibility and it adds a fair bit to the workload. But um, so far I've got the uh, forbearance and support of Lisa and everyone else here who chips in and covers for me when I'm tangled up with council duties. Yeah, so how have you found being a councillor? It's great. Yeah, there's a lot you can contribute so that you can sort of hopefully bring some improvements to our community, but it's a pretty stressful job too at times. We've had um, different issues that have confronted the council and I've, I've just thought at times, like, geez, why am, I, why am I tangled up in this? This is just, I've got enough stress at home without this. But it is good if you can navigate your way through those things, which we have been able to do so far and get a good result. So that's satisfying. That's important to get an outcome that will benefit our community. Obviously, there's a big time commitment there. How do you find the balance between your own farming business and serving the community? Well, technology is a great help here these days. So since the COVIDs, a lot of meetings that would have been face-to-face are now Zoom. So I can do those in the tractor spraying in the cattle yards. You just got to remember when you're doing them in the cattle yards to get the mute right. And, you know, when you're... <laughs> <laughs> not swearing at dogs or workers or... <laughs> uh, well, that's right. You know, the odd word might pop out at the Black Devils when they're not cooperating. So you don't need that broadcast to uh, all and sundry down the line, so... <laughs> What are Lisa's thoughts on your involvement in council? Mix is probably <laughs> mix would be a good way. I know um, in 2018 there was a, an election for the mayor of the council then, so I became a councillor in 2016. In 2018 there was an election and Lisa said to me, because we were in a world of pain with the drought in 18, and she did say, do not come home from this meeting as the mayor or there'll be trouble. So I took my advice there and then... Um, got the mayor's job in 2020 and then there was an election in 2021 for all the councillors again and as luck would have it, it was on Lisa's birthday and she did say to me that I could give her no finer present than if my name wasn't on the ballot paper but (laughs) anyway, I managed to uh, get the okay and put my hand up again and uh, was lucky to be um, re-elected as a councillor and then in turn re-elected as the mayor. So you must be very persuasive then if you can convince others that maybe council is for you in fact. I'd persuasive is the word, but um, I'm just lucky that I've got uh, a good offsider in, uh, it's a good game as we were discussing, the farming game, and it's nice to have all our family there, but there are times when it's pretty tough, like those last couple of years were pretty tough, and 18 and 19, and I'm very lucky to have someone who likes being a farmer and is good at it too, and understands that, you know, there are good times and there are some times that are pretty tough, and we're not a bad team. That's really nice. So, mate, you've got a big focus on community. 
Why do you see that as important in a rural setting? Oh, well, there's not that many of us out this part of the world, Rowan, so we're pretty lucky in our part of the world that people do hook in and help in the community. And that's just sort of an example from both of my parents, they were both very community-minded people, mum especially, and just following on from what they did, which is don't see a need without doing something about it. That's the way we were brought up and that's just continued on here. So whether it's involvement with the kids with the pony club where they were doing or junior rugby or senior rugby when I was playing that and I was involved with Coinda, which is our aged care retirement village in town here for 20 years and what I always liked about that was it was sort of set up by, uh, I think it was a Presbyterian minister originally, kicked it off because his mother-in-law had to leave town to get some care. And I thought, well, this is not, not on. So they set up that and some, you know, some, some old farmers and ministers and that got in and set up this wonderful organisation we got in town here. And it's, at the minute it's, you know, 3% of the town works there and 3% of the town lives there. You know, it's a big part of our community, this Coindo. And it's got everything you need, whether it's just independent living or dementia-specific or nursing home, hostel. And what I liked about it in the early days was that everybody got the same amount of care. So if you've got some money, if you've got some assets, well, they would like to invest those assets and take the interest while you're living there. Your family get most of that, nearly all of that back when you pass on. But if you're someone in the community who doesn't have any money, you get the same treatment, the same room, the same amount of care as someone who does. And I just think that's great. Things have changed a bit with the way the government regulations in latter years, but that's always been a wonderful way for um, our community to stick together so that you could be a, a wonderful community person all your life and then at the end of your days when you need some help, you have to go to Dubbo or you have to go to Mudgee or you have to go somewhere else. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. You can stay right here with all the people that love you and they can come and look after you in your own town. So that's a good thing. And then just got tangled up with council because a couple of people, my next door neighbour got in here and said, why don't we run for council? And we did and still in the job seven years later. <laughs> I think you've outlined there with your sort of Coinda, the aged care and, and just the importance that sort of getting involved and the impact that can have on a rural community. So it probably nullifies my question a bit, but do you think that the bush is, is slowly dying? No. You know, our population here is static, so I suppose that's not, that's not dying. I think we've had a couple of people, especially in our business, in the farming business, we we're pretty lucky that my friend's children, they follow them, their parents into the farming as well. So we've got a lot of those coming back in the last few years and that's, that's wonderful to see. I was, took a great deal of light there. You, uh, one of your previous people was, uh, you did was my mate Harry Clifton and uh, I was just thinking on Saturday I couldn't get in to watch the rugby. I was just busy here feeding cattle but, uh, and Harry was doing the commentating with another good mate DJ. But listening to the footy, they were, a lot of the names I was calling out were sons of blokes I played footy with. And that's really special too, you know, to hear those fellows' good names go around as they're running around and I can just think about all the good fun times I had playing with their dads. And, yeah, so I think just in our part of the world, I think we're holding our own rather than dying. I think we're, we're holding our own and that's, that's a good thing to see that young people want to come back and give agriculture a crack. That is great. So just going into the next topic, I find it probably interesting that you've got such a big focus on your livestock enterprise, whereas you've actually got a bit of a an interesting aspect to your farming in seed hawk planters. Been given a bit of background info that you know a thing or two about them. Why is that? Well, we used to import them, Lisa and I, for a while before they set up their own franchise out here and kept us on. We got into it a bit accidentally. Be 20 years ago this year, we, after a dry time, we had all our country farmed up conventionally. And as I was saying, 
it's a bit hilly here. And we just finished planting in April 2003, I think it was. And we had five inches of rain one night. Dirt up against the fence, complete mess. And I thought, you know, it was really quite upsetting to go and look at that. And I thought, well, we can't afford to have that keep happening. We need to change the way we do things. So we need to get into this direct drilling caper. And we looked around for a planter that might be suitable. And we go to Agquip and we went to Orange and, you know, we went to all the field days. And we just couldn't see something that we thought we could bring home here to our hard setting rocky dirt that we wouldn't break. And as luck would have it, we were just driving up the paddock one day and we noticed our neighbour was using a little 10-foot wide air seeder and it just had the tines on it or the openers on it that I'd imagined that that's what we needed. So I spoke to him and I said, where did you get this thing from? This is fantastic. And he put me on to uh, the soil conservation down at Wellington and so I contacted them and I said, where did you get this thing from? And they put me on to Seedhawk in Canada. So we sent a few emails to these characters over there and nobody replied. So then I worked out if I made an overseas phone call before, worked out how to ring Canada and gave these cowboys a phone call over there and spoke for the best part of an hour to them on the phone. And uh, I thought Lisa will have a fit when she sees the phone bill, but it was only seven bucks, I think. <laughs> anyway, but they said, no, you're too far away. We don't want to sell you anything. We've got all we need here. So I'd ring them every week and pretty please them with persuasion that you were talking about before. So eventually <laughs> they did agree to sell us one. So there was a bit of mucking around in getting the first one through customs and quarantine, which didn't need to be. If just dealing with the wrong people. Eventually, when you deal with the right people, there's some people in the world that want to help and some people that don't. And when you find the right people, eventually we got, it was only four phone calls and you'd get a machine from Saskatchewan to Coonabarabran, four phone calls, you know, simple, when you talk to the right people. But anyway, we got the first one delivered down in Sydney and the Wharfie people gave me a call and said, are you Ambrose Doolan? I said, yeah, mate, that's me. And he said, do you know how many parts are in this container? And I said, I don't know, there's got to be a few. And he said, there's got to be 10,000. And there was a few salty swear words thrown in. And he said, we're not unpacking this. We're going to send you up the container and you unpack it. And I said, well, I've only got a curtain side of truck down there. And he said, well, send him away and get someone with container pins. Anyway, the container came up here and there wasn't two bits of steel welded together. They just, as they cut it all out in Canada and threw it in the container. So a local bloke here, Richard Murphy, gave us a hand to weld it up and paint it up and we got it going. And then um, the first year that we used it was a dry autumn and our crop came up pretty well and our next door neighbours noticed how well it came up and they said, can you get us one of those? And then we did a bit of contracting work for a fellow to help pay the machine off and the farmer liked it. He said, how much to leave it here? So accidentally we got into selling them that way. So we sold, left that one there, sold that to him and sold one to the neighbours and then went on from there. It's a fascinating story. I, I would like to hope that the new ones that you get in aren't in 10,000 bits and the importation process is a bit more streamlined. We're a bit removed from that now. We don't have to do that. They come in, mob called Land Power, bring them in now. And Joe, the son-in-law, sells them now. And yes, yeah, so he just ordered it and it comes complete. Um, we did suggest to Seedhawk that why don't you put them together like a big Meccano said, And they said, well, you're the only person we export them to. Why would we change just for you? And then mob called Vatistad from Sweden came along and bought half of their business and they wanted to sell them to Europe. So then they had other customers that wanted them. So they did make them. That's how we got stuck into that. When we were talking about buying the machine back in 2003, I did say to Lisa, buying a new machine is a bit of a big step. And her words were, let's go for it. So we did. We bought that thing. So in the future, when we'd have 10 machines ordered and four had only been delivered and three weren't built and, you know, it's all stressed to get them done before planting started, I'd always throw that back at her and say, this is all your fault if you, <laughs> if you hadn't said, let's go for it. <laughs> we wouldn't have had all this trouble. But it was good to be able to... Um, build the bigger ones. So the bigger ones, the 80 footers, they're eight metres wide down the road, which isn't a problem in Canada because the 
agricultural machinery gets priority on the roads. So they don't care how wide it is, but it's a bit of a trick down here. Eight metres, you're in a world of pain in Australia. So we would build those on farm. So often I'd be away for uh, weeks at a time and Lisa kept the wheels of industry ticking along here. We'd be home for the weekends and get a bit of farming done or whatever we're doing and then go back and build them some more when we were trying to get on a bit. And the smaller ones, we'd build those here and just put them on a truck and deliver them. Mick was telling me when he left uni, he went to Canada for a year, worked on a farm over there and they wanted to shift their windrower to their other property, which is 100 k's away or something like that. So Mick asked them where the comb trailer was and they just thought that was hilarious. They said, what, what do you want that for? Just 30 foot wide front, just drive it down the road. <laughs> what do you want a comb trailer for? So. <laughs> oh, geez. So you've talked through, they're a pretty versatile sort of bulletproof machine. That's why you've used them on your hard and tough soils and conditions. What are some of the other benefits of the machine? Well, it's just ability, well, it'll dig. So it has to be able to dig. But the contour following the ground, so each opener can travel up and down 20 inches probably. So it can follow the contour of the ground. And then the wings on the machines, they've got a um, ground following ability too. So between the, the openers going up and down and the wings following the contour, you can, if you want to plant at 10 mils deep, she's 10 mils deep right across the whole machine. That's what it's good about the accuracy of where it can place the seed. And then also the thing that we, I always just tell people, we don't sell machines, we sell emergence. We get stuff to come up. And as I was saying to you before, we made a bit of a blue this year, not being ready to jump when the oats was ready to go. Back in February, I remember planting all of our oats on the least country one year and it all came up nice and early. And a lot of my mates put a bit in, but then thought it was a bit dry. We had it all in and... If you think about waiting six weeks until the next rain came, that's 42 days. If you've got a beast putting on a kilo a day at, say, four bucks, that's 28 bucks, is it, a week? Six times that, you know, it's 150 bucks. That's proper money, you know. You've got to really take that opportunity of what we're saying there before. Timeliness is king. You've got to get it in. So if you can get it in and up where other people aren't, that's a big difference. I know we sold a machine to a fellow... We became pretty good friends with him over time. He didn't know me from a hole in the head to start with, but we sold him a, a 60-footer down south of here and he had 7,000 acres of farming, two blocks 100 k's apart. So he put the first 4,000 acres in all right and then he had a bit of tractor trouble and only on 20 mils of rain. He had a bit of tractor trouble. So with the time he got to the other 3,000 acres, it was a month after the 20 mils. So I went down and had a look and I said, it'll come up. Well, you know, I'll just do a little bit. I said, no, put it all in. It'll be right. It'll come up. And it came up so well that we had a field day then, got people to come and have a look. And the night of the field day, there was another inch of rain in the district. So a lot of people planted some more on that inch of rain six weeks after he'd done his planting. And he told me that that 3,000 acres yielded 11 bags to the acre. It's a bit old school for some of you young folks, but 11 bags to the acre. A bit under a tonne to the acre, I think, is the, is yeah, the conversion. that's the conversion. And the stuff that other people planted on that rain in June, it went three bags. So he just said to me, so 3,000 acres times an extra eight bags is a free machine. He said, you gave me the machine. I you know, paid for it in one year. So that's nice when people can tell you something like that. So is there any other situations that it's maybe not as well suited to? Oh, look, they've had their troubles with, you know, they leapt into some super technology with sectional control that was probably needed to be workshopped a bit more, but they've got that under wraps now and that's re- really quite good. That'll be the next thing we'll go to with them with the sectional control, like every boom spray is sectional control now. So if you can do that with the planter. With your seed and fertiliser. Yeah. We've got a paddock up at the other block. The boom spray makes it 110 hectares. The planter makes it 140. So there's 30 hectares that don't exist. 
but you're chucking 150 bucks of fertilizer at it plus seed. And then on those areas that you're double sowing, the plant establishment is not what you want. It's twice as thick. So you could be looking at decreased yield there or sort of screenings, higher screenings in those areas. Yeah, that's right. Or, you know, in a good year might be lodged, the crop will lodge, you know, with extra fertilizer, it'll tip over, get too, it might go too well. So, you know, it's less than ideal. So that's what we have our eye on to do next is um, get one of them with the sectional control. It's a good thing. And we had a machine here that they got us to trial that had finished the field. You can just tell the control, you know, set it up that when we finish this paddock, I don't want any seed left in the box. And it will say to you, okay, well, if that's the case, you wanted 50 kilos of hectare. We don't have quite enough for that. We've got enough for 46. Oh, okay, right. So we'll, we'll go at 46 and the box will be empty when you finish the paddock rather than um, it's always the thing, oh, look at this thing. I've got half a thing to get rid of or whatever. So. Or run out when you've got three hectares left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. So that's pretty cool. So I, I do like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah cool. Anyways, I've had an absolute cracker today. Before we wrap up, my final question, I like to ask our guests, what's the big issue in Australian ag at the moment? You hear a lot of people struggling to get people to help on the farm. So that's big. You know, we, we rely pretty heavily on uh, the people who work here with us and we'd be in strife if they weren't here. So that's probably a big issue where the next lot of people come from. And I think that's something that we need to be working on to tell people who live in the city that it's pretty good out here and you don't have to be born on a farm to be involved in agriculture. That's, uh, you know, Mick's got some mates from school that uh, are pretty, done pretty well in the agricultural field and they come from Sydney but wanted to be involved in agriculture and, and found a career, a good career that they can do out here. So I think we need to work on our city cousins a bit more that it's all pretty good out here and um, you don't have to be flogging yourself six or 700 bucks a week to rent somewhere. You can come out here and have plenty of room and a bit more in your pocket than you will do in Sydney. So I think that's something. Well, I think if with the powers of persuasion that you've got, I think you're probably the right man for the job, Ambrose. Ambrose, thanks so much for that. I love that answer. And thanks for coming on the Seeds for Success podcast. Right about See ya. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.